Welcome to That Said. I am Michael Zeldin. On today's show, we will be speaking with Anne Hagedorn about her book, Sleeper Agent, The Atomic Spy in America Who Got Away. Anne is a former Wall Street Journal staff writer where she covered federal trials and white-collar crime, among other stories of national importance. She is the award-winning author of five previous books that cover a wide range of deeply researched topics, from the rise of private military and security companies, to the little-known heroes of the Underground Railroad, to a biography of the year 1919, perhaps the most repressive year in American history. Anne Hagedorn, welcome to That Said. Thank you very much. I'm honored to be here. I like to start these interviews by asking the authors to tell us about themselves. So tell us where did you grow up and where did you go to school and why did you become a journalist? Right. Good questions. Grew up in Dayton, Ohio, Kansas City, Cleveland, Ohio, and I went to school at Denison University, fabulous liberal arts school in Ohio, majored in history, then University of Michigan and Columbia University for two master's degrees. And how did I know I was to be a writer? That is always an interesting question uh, to ask writers exactly when and how they know those things. So for me, I think it happened very quickly in about a three-week period many years ago when I was working at NYU. I was working at, as a writer, a writer, a ghost writer, basically, a writer of grant proposals, press releases, narratives for library exhibits, speeches, even at least one op-ed piece, but always anonymously writing every day. And I loved it. I loved that job. So then three things happened. One, I met the author, William Styron, who wrote many books, but the one in uh, the focus here was Sophie's Choice. I went to an event at Amnesty International. Mr. Styron's wife was the president of Amnesty then, Rose Styron. I knew people who knew the Styrons really well, so I went to an event after the premiere of the film, Sophie's Choice, and talked to William Styron, asked him, you know, here I was, this young writer with a a ghostwriting job, basically. So I asked him, uh, how do you know if you're meant to be a writer? It's an important question, whether to go forward with uh, such a career. And he said, very simply, because all you think about is writing, writing and stories. That's all you think about. So soon after that, someone gave me a copy of Rilke, the poet Rilke's book, Letters to a Young Poet. I read it, and there was one part that I actually partially memorized that said, ask yourself in the stillest hour of your night, must I write? And if you meet that question with a strong I must, then build your life according to this necessity. Next, I had lunch with a cousin at CBS News who said it was time. He was way older than I was. And he said, it's time for you to think about moving on. You have to go from anonymity to bylines. And I thought, well, that's really great. He's going to offer a job, offer me a job. But of course, he didn't. He said, you're not ready to 
work here or at any journalistic uh, organization, you need to go to journalism graduate school and shape that that writing, learn more about journalism. So those three things happened in about, I would say, three weeks to a month. And so the next step was going to graduate school uh, at Columbia and then, uh, you know, getting into journalism. But the instinct was always there, but you need conduits to recognize it. So that's it. So you work at the Wall Street Journal for a while as a, yes. as a working journalist. I certainly did. And all the while, you've got this notion that you're going to be a writer of books. And so we fast forward. You've written five books already. And then this sleeper agent book that we're going to be discussing sort of begins to percolate a bit in your mind. So tell us a bit yes. about how you came to write this book, because it's a bit obscure in a sense. And so I'm interested in how the idea came to you. Well, the idea came to me in an interview with someone uh, for a book idea, a topic that I was hell-bent on doing, and I could not find the right narrative for it. Uh, you know, there's a big difference between topic and story for narrative nonfiction. So, uh, so I was interviewing this guy, and all of a sudden, he said, you grew up in Dayton, didn't you? I said, yes. He said, did you know about the Soviet spy who lived there during World War II? Said, no. And so he started talking about this, and I think, you know, he basically wanted uh, someone to find out about it, and he didn't have the name of the spy. And so I thanked him for the interview at the end and then went about my business for another two or three weeks pursuing this other topic. But it's that mix of spontaneity plus skepticism plus curiosity that kind of drove me to wanting to know more. So I started uh, digging just a little and I found a New York Times article that had been written about 10 years before that was about the Vladimir Putin giving a spy named George Koval a posthumous award. And it mentioned Dayton and Oak Ridge. And I thought, and some of the little details that that gentleman had told me, though he didn't tell me his name. So I was pretty sure that this was the person uh, that I was looking for. And then I made the typical list. You know, I call that my flight plan, trying to figure out exactly what was known. That was a great article in the Times. But what was known, what wasn't known and would have to be known if you wrote a biography about the guy. I mean, the guy, this is a spy who was never caught. So you have the problem of no trial transcripts. So I immediately called the Reporters Committee for Freedom of the Press to get the latest on how to use the Freedom of Information Act to get more, to get some FBI records, et cetera, et cetera. And then jumped in the car, drove to D.C., spent about a week at the National Archives in College Park, Maryland. That was the turning point. Fabulous archivists, found out fabulous details. And then I was 
I would have to say obsessed because there were so many questions to answer and it was such an adventure in terms of research. So uh, from 2017, early 2017 on, I barely took a day off, just constantly researching. And how so long that's did how take- it happened. It was by accident. So go ahead. Yeah. No, I was going to say, how long did it take you finally to get from this idea to a finished manuscript? Uh, to a finished manuscript, three and three years and three months, three and a half years. Wow. <laughs> but you know, you're talking about finding, you know, working with a Russian translator, getting uh, thousands and thousands of pages of FBI files because, uh, FBI reports, because of many different uh, spies from the era to find, to put together timelines, figure out where the intersections were, identify the handler, uh, you know, everything from tax records, ship manifests, maps, photos, uh, walking through the Bronx, interviewing landlords, property records, news clips, postcards, yearbooks, letters, journals, arrest records, application forms, even inscriptions in books, passports, and those thousands of pages of FBI reports all had to be indexed and lots of timelines. Timelines are, you know, great keys to putting together these things. Where do different individuals' lives intersect and why? Things like that. So it was quite an adventure. And I had a great Russian translator. I had a great uh, assistant who uh, indexed all the FBI pages and put together timelines for me. Every time I figured out there had to be a timeline, it was it was a great experience. I met some fabulous librarians and archivists, the heroes of our world, some of the heroes of our world, yeah. Well, so the, the principal protagonist of your book is George Koval, the spy who got away, the subtitle of the book. But before we ask and answer the questions of who is George Koval, tell us, if you would, first about his father, Abram Koval. Yes, Abram. Abram was a carpenter who lived in a little town called Telekani, which was on the outskirts of Pinsk in Belarus. Can you picture where Belarus is? It was part of the Russian Empire then. It's now bordered by Russia in the north and the northeast, Ukraine in the south, Poland to the west, and Lithuania and Latvia uh, to the northwest. Anyhow, he grew, he, he was from Telekani and, uh, that was in the, in the Pale of Settlement. And you'll want to know what the Pale of Settlement is, correct? Yes. Uh, that, that was a tier of provinces in European Russia and Russian held Poland. So that was, uh, the Telekani where there were nearly four million Jews living there and with restrictions, horrendous restrictions that stifled their lives, especially economic progress, such as the inability to purchase land, to own businesses, to enter professions. There was 
a 10% Jewish quota in secular schools, that was the pale of settlement. And that's right. where Abram lived. And Tsar Nicholas II was a profound anti-Semite. And during this time, there were over 600 pogroms, which are essentially terrorism acts perpetrated against the Jewish community in uh, 660 towns throughout the Pale. That's that's exactly right. Yeah, it began in 1905 after the Tsar signed what was called the October Manifesto of 1905, which basically promised a parliament elected by all classes. Jews would have the right to vote and be elected. And celebrations occurred after his signing, of course. And in short, the uh, celebrations turned into bloody massacres that went on for a long time. The czar had no real interest in abdicating. And when the manifesto was issued, the Jews were largely blamed for it and the pogroms exactly followed. And But Avram was not simply a victim of no. this, this anti-Semitism. He was an activist. He was part of the uh, Jewish labor union known as the Bund. So That's talk right. a little bit about the Bund and his activism, because it's important. Well, he was basically part of the activism that uh, the, against the czar and against anti-Semitism. And I could go on for uh, a half an hour talking about the Bund. I shouldn't do that. So we should, uh, but as you said, it was very important that he was part of that. And actually, he likely, um, I could never prove it, but he likely met his wife, his future wife, Ethel Shanitsky, uh, in the Bund. She was also in the Bund. And so they were very active. Later in life, George Koval said to one of his friends that my mother was a socialist long before anyone knew the meaning of the word. So she was the daughter of a rabbi who didn't want his daughter to switch religions from his to socialism. So she and Abram were very committed to the concept of uh, socialism and uh, the end of world oppression, basically, was their goal. That was their true obsession because right. they obviously had been living in in the plague of anti-Semitism. And so they are confronted with the age-old question of do we stay or do we go? And do we fight or do we flee? And they made a decision then to flee. And at the time, they looking for a world which was a better place to live, saw America as that beacon on the hill and decided they were going to come here. Although, of course, there was at this time very tight restrictions on Jews coming into America. But they connected with something called the Galveston Movement, something I knew nothing of until I read your book. There are a lot of things I didn't know until I read your book, but one of them them was the Galveston Movement. So tell us about that, please. Well, I can tell you that was one of what I call my aha moments. You know, you're sitting in an archive somewhere in a library, and all of a sudden you realize something you didn't know that 
explains a lot. And I was at the Center for Jewish History in Manhattan trying to find the ship manifest, trying to find the confirmation that Abram and Ethel had come to Ellis Island in 1910, respectively, and 1911. Couldn't find anything. The archivist, one of the archivists said, well, maybe they came through Galveston. And I said, Galveston? So they sent, brought out a library wagon that was just filled with information. It was one of the most fascinating things to discover. I had no idea there was an Ellis Island of the West. But as you said, this, this was a movement that was put together by a group of New York Jews, prominent people who wanted to prevent restrictions, immigration with all the influx, the huge influx of Russian Jews coming after 1905. So long story short, it's a fascinating story of how they decided it should be Galveston. But anyhow, they created a uh, an Ellis Island of the West and also connected with cities west of Mississippi where they could build Jewish communities. It, it was a wonderful uh, concept and worked well for a while. Yeah, so they board a boat, they arrive in Galveston, Texas, and they are able to immigrate because there are less restrictions there than there were in New York and Ellis Island. And off they go to Sioux City, Iowa, of all places, around 1910, 1911. And you write that by 1911, through this Galveston movement, there are about 3,000 Jews living in Sioux City, Iowa, and it became sort of like a regional nucleus for Jews west of the Mississippi. And there they plunked themselves down. And you write, in some sense, they were living the American dream. They had the house. They had three boys. And all seemed good at the outset. Yes? Yes, that's true. Well, it took some building. They uh, eventually owned two houses. And so they owned property. Their children could go to good schools. They had three children. George was the middle son. He was uh, born on December 25th, 1913. It was the quote from the book, in a setting of baseball, newsboys, skits, and plays, George's childhood appeared quite normal. But as a Jew from Russia coming of age during the early decades of the 20th century, there was a continuous reel of politics and prejudice in the background of his life from the start. That's that's a fascinating detail in the saga, don't you think? Yes. So he's living this all-American newsboy, baseball, high school life, but there's a lot going on. There's a lot of noise in the background, especially after the Russian Revolution of 1917, where anti-Semitism even finds its way grossly into Sioux City, Iowa, among other places, of course. So talk about how does his life begin to change? How do the Koval's life Mr. and Mrs. and the three boys change with the revolution in Russia. You'd think they'd be separate and distinct. One is Russia and one is Sioux City, Iowa, of all places, but they didn't. 
No, and I think it's from what I said earlier that from the start, Ethel and Abram's goal was the ending world depression. They were very idealistic. They were very devoted to that. And you have to realize that after the Russian Revolution, in the new Russia, anti-Semitism was illegal. And if you're sitting here in America watching the anti-Semitism grow because everyone is the conspiracy theories are that Jews caused the Russian Revolution. And so they would do the same in America. So every Jew must be a Bolshevik. And the anti-Semitism was growing. But in their country of origin, anti-Semitism was suddenly illegal. So you have to put yourself in their shoes in that situation. And uh, the conspiracy theories were rampant. And this period, the early 1920s, was the Red Scare. And yes, the, the first Red Scare. The first Red Scare and the precipitous of rise of the Ku Klux Klan. And I think you write that historians will say of this period, it was the greatest barrage of anti-Semitism in American history. So here are the Kovals looking at a Russia that they fled, you know, a czar, oppressive Russia. And now they see this Bolshevik revolution, Russia. And again, they're in this, what do we do? What State do we do? That, it's, that's the uh, the underlying theme of one of the underlying themes of the book is definitely to leave or not to leave, when to leave. And one other little detail uh, in the 1920s was that Henry Ford's 91-part series of articles called The International Jew, which was a series that depicted Jews as having this international conspiracy to take over the world, basically. He apologized publicly for doing that later. But in the 1920s, you had that. You had uh, the rise in KKK membership, even out in the plain states. Then you had, at the same time, the uh, growing interest of a group called i Jewish Colonization of Russia. And George's father became the regional head of i I think that was in 1924. That's what I recall. So uh, that's it. So how old was George in 1924? He was 11 years old. So he's growing up in the midst of conspiracy theories, growing anti-Semitism, and his father being the regional head of a group that's pushing for colonization of Russian Jews back in Russia. He's the head of what we would think of as a sort of back to Russia movement. Yes. But they still stay. George graduates from Sioux City Central yes. High uh, in 1929. He's a National Honor Society a winner, member yes. of the debate team. He becomes he's a, an expert on all things baseball, this all-American kid who graduates at age 15, right? He's yes. a prodigy. He is. He was also a skilled shortstop. Don't forget that. Yeah. We'll reverse the order. A yeah. skilled shortstop is much harder to be than a prodigy. Right. But yes, yeah, he was uh, a star he for a while. Yeah. So when he graduates, age 15, he then goes on to the University of Iowa, right? And he's studying engineering. So engineering is his field. 
And he seems to be doing well. And the Kovals are still in this, what do we do state of mind until it seems the stock market crashes. That seems to have been a pivot point in their lives. I think so. They were swayed by in that uh, whether or not to leave their new home, the quote unquote American dream that they seem to have been living. They were swayed by the crushing realities of the depression. There's no doubt about that. And the growing perils of fascism, which was, you know, growing all around them. In contrast, as we've said, to the promises of a better land for Jews in the USSR, that's their their vision anyhow. They could have a new life. It was in the Jewish autonomous region. It was also called Bira Bizan. So this time, the couple, in their decision, though, we have to remember that the couple had three sons whose futures they must place before their own above their own, so but they this, decide at, to leave, yes. But at this time, as they're wrestling with what to do, mm-hmm. George is increasingly becoming political. He yes. joins the Young Communist League and is wont to deliver street corner soapbox speeches. He attends the Youth Communist League convocation as the Iowa delegate, so Yes. <laughs> he was following closely in the political footsteps of his parents. Yes. He, he, those, uh, those speeches on, at street corners in Iowa City, very interesting. Uh, he was telling people that the depression wasn't affecting the Soviet Union. It was entering a period of unstoppable industrial expansion. Really, he was saying the socialist world was taking off while the capitalism was collapsing. Those were the talks that he gave. Then he went to Chicago for a big convention, Communist Party convention, as the representative from Iowa for the Youth Communist Party. And then when he came back, that would have been in 1930. Then in 1931, he had joined uh, one of the unemployed councils. I think he was the regional head of the unemployed council for that was part of an unemployment movement. It was uh, set up locally to fight foreclosures and evictions, part of a nationwide group to take regional and local action for the unemployed. And he got arrested. That was in 1931 for trying to organize a protest uh, against poverty Focusing on two women who had been evicted. That's right. So there's this emerging activism on George's part. Meanwhile, the parents have made a decision that they are going to return to the Soviet Union, thinking that at this point in 1931, it is really now the only country dedicated to ending poverty and oppression, whereas the capitalist system of the United States is showing its oppressive true colors. So correct. they decide to leave. Now, you've mentioned it, but I want to just talk a little bit about the uh, Jewish autonomous region, the I-Corps. As we said, it's a return to Russia movement for the Jews, but it's a really, it's like a kibbutz-like encampment in eastern Russia. When you describe it, it doesn't sound so nirvana-like. 
we talked about why they decided to go. Russia is the only place that is dedicated to ending poverty and oppression. And they decide to go to the Eastern Autonomous Zone. So tell us what it was like. They decide that that's where they're going to go. And so just tell us a little bit about it. And then I want to talk about how they leave the country. Well, yes, they, as I said, it was the Jewish Times region is also called Birabizan. And actually the administrative center was Birabizan. That was in the Soviet Far East. It was near the border with China. And the goal was to attract as many Jews as possible to a new land of Jewish unity and to fight the Zionist call, basically, for Jews to move to Palestine. It was a Jewish colonization in the USSR, and it needed to be developed. It was a lot of land that needed to be cultivated and developed. It was not... How shall I say? It was not at all what it appeared to be from a distance. However, there is, and if you note that in the book, there were a group of Americans who went there to look at it from, um, I think they were from a Mormon group from Utah, a huge group of people to examine and study it. And when they came back, they said there was great potential in the land and the location, et cetera, et cetera. So there was a lot of hope. And the people who went there early on, the statistics are in the book, the were very, very dedicated to developing this community. And George's father was major in that development. He was highly respected. He was written about in several publications, being a leader in the new community. But the winters were, as you can well imagine, horrendously cold and difficult. And they had a lot of challenges, let's say. And George met those challenges. I think that's where he learned to be a blacksmith and learned to do all sorts of things out in the wilderness. And then he earned some awards and one was to go to Moscow and he took some, a course at Mendeleev and then at Mendeleev Institute and then applied there and became a a student. Yeah. So I want to back up one step, which is important to the narrative. When the Kovals decide to leave, they depart in 31 after 22 years in America, and they leave on a family passport. So tell us about that, and we'll see in a little bit why that is so important to George Koval. Well, family passport did not include George's name. The children's names were not on it. The, fa- the passport was in his father's name. So that means there was no record for George leaving the country, which means when he returned, he could still be George Koval, who had been in the country in the 1930s when he had not. Right. So that that's the one of the, there are probably about five different interesting moments 
for helping him get away with what he did. And one of them was being just a gentleman who lived in Iowa and decided to move to New York in 1940 when he came back because there was no record of him ever being in Russia. So I'm sure the GRU, when they decided he should be a spy, when they recruited him, knew that that was a very important detail. So George is, back to our timeline, George is studying chemistry in Moscow. We're talking now 1935 to 1939. He meets his wife there, Mila Ivanova, and they're living a life of husband and wife, and he as a student. But this is a dangerous time in Russia. We're in now Stalin's Russia, and a lot of people are turning others in. They're sort of naming names. And this presents a problem for George and, and Mila. Yes? Yes. Well, you have to realize that Mila came from a family that was part of the Russian aristocracy. Her father spent four years in the Imperial Army. He did join the Red Army later after the revolution, but he was four years in the Imperial Army. Her grandfather started and for years ran a candy factory, which made chocolate that was popular with the czar and many others. She was from an, a family that had a, uh, a problem in terms of Stalin. So right. there was that. And then there were some details as you read uh, about the people they lived with in the same building who were ratting on them, basically, especially George had a typewriter. George, they had social events where they invited people to their little room, basically. And uh, there was someone in the building they were living in, which actually was her grandfather's house, who was sending notes about him about their lives. And so they, plus the fact that they had a cousin who had a husband who defected and they didn't report it. So there was a list, a list of things that both Mila and George had to think about seriously to keep their lives somewhat sane. Yes. So if you will, they are vulnerable to the types of excesses that Stalinism is known for. So with this vulnerability and with his American pedigree and with his advanced studies of engineering and chemistry, he is a perfect target for the GRU, which is essentially Russia's CIA. And they approach him about being a spy. His wife's against it, but he acquiesces, right? He says... Essentially, for the sake of my family, I'm going to accept the offer of a one or two year assignment to America. Correct. And he was told it would only be two years. And you do have to realize that the decision to do that is very interesting. I I, I doubt whether there really was much of a decision on his part because the war had just started. It was September 1939. And he knew that if he went with the GRU, his family, remember his entire family, his closest 
members were there in Russia, so in the Soviet Union, and so he wanted to protect them. If he was a spy for two years in for GRU in America, he would be protecting his family during wartime. And also, like I said, he, he had the promise. I mean, I think that's why Mila objected to it. She didn't trust Stalin. She didn't trust anyone telling him that describe who would describe exactly what he would be doing and how long he would be there. They also told him that he could bring his wife. She could join him after a certain period of time. So, but that's what he did. So he went into training as an intelligence officer, red army trained intelligence officer. Then he came back. And then they have to, right, they have to get him back to America. And then to the point that we made about the family passport, you said this previously, I just want to say it again to keep the narrative flow. When he leaves, (laughs) his name is not on any document saying he's left. So now all the GRU has to do is figure out a way to sneak him into the country and it says if he never listened, and and they accomplished that. How did they do it? Well, how did he get in? Yeah, well, that uh, is such an excellent question and very difficult to answer at the time of doing the research. It was almost impossible to answer because they did it so well, I suppose. But uh, luckily, George wrote a letter to Mila once he landed in a boat, a cargo ship in San Francisco. He gave a a letter to the ship's captain to take back to Vladivostok to be delivered to Moscow eventually to his wife, explaining all the details of the voyage from Vladivostok to San Francisco. And this would have been in the autumn of 1940. Uh, What you have to realize, he went 5,772 miles on a train from Moscow to Vladivostok, then 4,554 nautical miles from Vladivostok to San Francisco. Very interesting. And he was 27 years old, which is how old his father was when his father came to Galveston. I I love that detail. But at any rate, uh, finding that letter that he sent to Mila with all of the descriptions was the only way to find out how he returned. He also did have a false passport, but I don't think he used it. I don't know. Uh, And I could never find the name that was used on it. But I do know when that ship came in and then he eventually from San Francisco, within days, it looks like, took a, a train to New York. So he moves to New York and he lives in the Shomalechem houses in New York City, which essentially were the houses that most of the Jews lived in, in New York. And he makes contact with his handler. Lawson was his handler's name. Lawson, Lassen. Right. Lassen, yeah. Benjamin. Original name was La- Lassoff. But he also, once I started researching him in detail, there are probably about 
nine or 10 different names that he went by, but yeah, his, his name was officially Lassoff until 1931 and he became Benjamin William Lassen. And that so, was the name George knew him by. Yes. And so he meets Lassen and they have this typical spiring sort of cell structure with hubs and spokes and no one knows all of who else is in the conspiracy, if you will, but they have central points of contact. So there's George in this hub and spoke sort of spy ring. And what were the plans for George? So he's here, he's a, a spy, but what's he supposed to be doing? What was his, if you accept this mission, you know, sort of mission impossible, what was the notion? <laughs> Well, his his assignment was to find out what America was doing in terms of research on chemical weapons. That was his assignment. And by chemical, do you mean nuclear or traditional no. chemicals? No, just traditional chemical weapons. Don't forget uh, World War One and where we were in 1939. No, not not to my knowledge, and there's no evidence at that point. In 1939, when he got his assignment, but things were changing very quickly in that world. And I think that his handler, who read the New York Times and the Daily Worker every day, kept up with everything that was going on and that was being reported in terms of physics and uh, the development, which... uh, takes us to one of my favorite details, his enrollment at Columbia. That was going to be my question. So, oh, good. That's good. So <laughs> his initial mandate is chemical weapons, thinking, well, we're in World War II. We know World War I was a, uh, right. a bounty of chemical weapons warfare. What's the next generation of these weapons going to be? But things change. And Lassen says, essentially to Koval, you might want to enroll in Columbia University's adult education extension program. So why Columbia? What was going on there? Well, it's very interesting when you put together this timeline. For one thing, that detail was just a a sentence and a half in one of the FBI reports. It was an interview with a registrar at Columbia who said that George took this chemistry course and he got a B, by the way, and he took the chemistry course and uh, that was it. So how to get take it further? Well, it's finding out about the course, who taught it, and how could they have known that at that point in time, Columbia had become a magnet for some of the most highly regarded physicists and chemists in the world. Some obviously were destined to play stellar roles in the production of the first atomic bomb. So there had been a front page article in the New York Times on May 5th, 1940, that Lassen could not have avoided. Uh, of course, I never interviewed Lassen to find out if he read it, but somehow the people... George was working with, knew what was happening at Columbia in physics. And that article was very detailed and very, very 
excellent and informative. So all the details of the science at Columbia at the time. So that was May of 1940. George comes into the back to the America. He registers with the army in 1941, January. And, you know, that establishes his location where he is. And, and then he goes to apply to Columbia to take the chemistry class. So. And at Columbia, really. So to. Fabulous. Yeah. Describe what was going on is that's where Enrico Fermi is working on the fission experiments, right? I mean, wasn't it true that Einstein who had Princeton is telling FDR about the important work of Enrico Fermi and other Columbia professors in fission. And that's where George finds himself in this world. Well, let's put it this way. George was taking a class in a building where in the basement there was a cyclotron, which is an atom smasher. And uh, there are some great details about what had happened at Columbia right before in the probably 18 months before George enrolled. So, and he also had a teacher who was an expert, was on a national commission uh, for regarding chemical weapons. So that was, so he was fulfilling his assignment from the GRU by taking that course and meeting that professor, but he also was learning a lot about physics, nuclear physics, and the chemistry that would be very, very important to the making of the atomic bomb. So things happen. There are some intervening steps, but he finds himself in the army and assigned to the special engineering or engineer detachment, the SED in Oak Ridge. So tell us about what was going on there. So George, well, by, by, by yeah. a number of sort of steps, George ends up at Oak Ridge in the SED. Right. His timeline, so to speak, February 1943, he's enlisted, right? He goes to Fort Dix. He goes to the Citadel. He tests so high. Um, the uh, tests that they give to the Army personnel that he was allowed to enter an elite group called the Army Specialized Training Program, ASTP. And that sent him for a year to CCNY to intensify his scientific background. Yeah, City College of New York. He was there for a year. And then because of the excellence of his work at CCNY, he was then picked to be part of the special engineer detachment and then sent to Oak Ridge. So in all the documents, you know, there's just this line that he was at Oak Ridge, I think for 11 months. But the big question for me was, what did he do? What did he do on a daily basis? And that's one of the keys in the story, I think. I found uh, many details about it at what's called the Oak Ridge Room in Oak Ridge, of course, with many archives. And George was trained 
once he got to Oak Ridge to be a health physicist. So what did this mean about what he did on a daily basis? This a health physicist would measure levels of radiation contamination and such work required access to very confidential and secret information. Most of all, it was classified. Most of it was classified. So health physicists had to learn the basic chemical properties of all the radioactive materials they were monitoring. And they also had to be present whenever repair work was done on any equipment at the plants. Plus, and here is a very key point, the health physics department kept records and had to be present when there were shipments. So Oak Ridge was where fuels for the bomb were made, correct? And so the fuels were then shipped to Los Alamos. All those records had to be approved by the health physics department, which means what? There were documents in the files. If he wasn't one of the health physicists present for the shipment, He could easily look in the files and find out where things were being shipped and what was being shipped. So he did routine surveys of all offices and labs to check for the signs of contamination. And in the training manual that I found for health physicists, it said, know all operations in your area, be alert to changes, make thorough surveys daily. This was a Soviet spy who was working as a health physicist. Don't you find that interesting? Yeah. And, of course, (laughs) he is reporting everything back that he's learning to Lassen. And Lassen is, in turn, sending it back to the GRU. So he's a key man in in a key location as they're developing the basis for the development of, of the bomb. But more importantly, and to your story of how did you get to this Koval stuff and the guy who introduced you to the idea says, well, you know, there was a Soviet spy who lived in Dayton. Well, so Dayton has become now a starting point for you, but now we're sort of at a critical point in George's spying. He gets transferred to Dayton from Oak Ridge. And what was so important about Dayton? Well, Dayton was where the polonium was in in the early days, or it's not really early days, but at first in the Manhattan Project, there were two ways to produce the polonium. The polonium was crucial to, it was the fuel for the trigger, right? So there were two ways to do it, synthesize it or extract it naturally from the lead dioxide. So in Dayton, they were extracting polonium for probably a a year and a half, and it was just not creating enough for what they would need. And in Hanford, Washington, and Oak Ridge, in Oak Ridge at facility X10, which was one where George, according to records, spent most of his time, much of his time, they were synthesizing, they were manufacturing polonium by irradiating bismuth, but we don't need to go into into every scientific detail. But then in Dayton, when 
they decided to drop the one way of of making polonium, the natural way, and to put all of their energy and resources into synthesizing it. Then they expanded the facilities and the goals and the pressure and everything in Dayton to produce the polonium. George and one of his colleagues at Oak Ridge were transferred to Dayton because they were experts on polonium. And also because they were health physicists and they were, they were experts on radiation contamination and polonium was highly toxic to say the least. So, yes. So he was transferred there in June of 1945. So polonium and the neutron generator, which would serve as the trigger for the bomb and the development or the extraction of the polonium was critical. And and it took time, took the American scientists a really long time to perfect the acquisition of or development of the polonium to meet the needs. And George is able to transfer this information, this critical information to the Soviets to say, look, you need polonium. And I've learned there's only one really good way to do it. So don't waste your time like the Americans have learning this. I'm going to tell you the answer to the question. The question is bismuth irradiation. That's how you get the polonium necessary to serve as the trigger for the bomb. And it speeds up dramatically the Russians' development of their own bomb because they don't have to waste 18 months or two years or whatever it is going through the same lead dioxide extraction versus bismuth irradiation process, right? Yeah, to figure it out. Yeah, it it cut things in short. Well, I mean, that was one of the things that uh, the spies in America cut short. Yeah, definitely the polonium and the plutonium for one of the bonds, the implosion bomb, yes. But the polonium was hugely important. And actually, I have thought at times about writing the biography of polonium because it's, it is fascinating. So few people know about polonium unless it's in the news because it was put in someone's tea because he, a spy was going to be killed by it, but uh, which happened a couple of years ago. But yes, but polonium in this story is a a fascinating detail. And I I have to say, I really was uh, very inspired to learn more about nuclear physics because of entering the world of learning about polonium. So I want to step forward a few years. It's 46 now. So George has been reporting all about what's going on in, in Columbia and the fission in, in Oak Ridge about the transportation of and the contents of the materials being transported. He goes to Dayton. He's learning all about polonium. He's really given the Soviets a roadmap to the development of their own bomb. We dropped the two bombs in 45, Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And George now gets discharged from the army. It's 46. The war is over. He's done his work. 
And what starts happening in the U.S. is the House Un-American Activities Committee is really being reinvigorated. And the, as you call it in the book, the hunt is on. There are lots of things that are happening here. There's the Whitaker Chambers, Alger Hiss case, which was a, another spy accusation case. There were two defections, one in Canada and one in the U.S. And so in this period, it's 46, 47, Koval is now here in his eighth year. Yes. So, so much for his one to two year business trip. He's here in his eighth year and he's got to be looking for an exit strategy because the news yes. is tightening. Some of his fellow spies have been arrested and they're yes. going on trial for espionage. So what's going on? What are you learning about? What is George up to and how is he avoiding detection? Yes. Excellent question. And uh, the timeline from about the spring of 1946 to the September of 1948 is rather intense for a Soviet spy in New York. He moves back to New York. He goes back to school. I mean, think about this. There was a GRU defection in Canada in uh, September 1945, then in mid-March 1946, the first public official in the West to be charged with spying for the Soviet Union was arrested, Fred Rose. And the photo in the New York Times of uh, the guy's arrest was had the legend, how many of these are in the United States? So that was mid-March 1946. That's when he put in a request he wanted to come back. Well, there were problems. The Soviet consulate connection that his handler had had packed his bags and left in December 1945. George had to keep a low profile in 46-47. What did he do? He went back to school. He went to CCNY to complete the degree that he had started during the war. And it kept a very low profile. That's when he joined the two bowling leagues. And and actually, I think he ran a little club for conservative politics. He did all kinds of things during that period of time. Dated a lot of women. Did you read where he was a ladies' man? He didn't tell his wife that, though. No. I, well, we don't know. Uh, we don't know. I, I wish I could have interviewed him. I wish I could have interviewed her. Okay. So, uh, but, you know, there's a line in the book where by by the summer of 1948, you have to realize by 1948, it wasn't just anti-communism and the shouting of the HUAC, the House on Un- american Activities. It was also anti-Semitism. It was growing again. If you look at what was happening with the HUAC, six of the Hollywood 10, as well as 90% of blacklisted teachers were Jewish. It was happening again in his life. So there was some story in the New York Times about 21% of Americans believed that most Jews were communists and more than 50% of the people were tying Jews to atomic spying. So by 1948, 
things had gotten quite intense. And as you said, in August of 1948, there was the Whitaker Chambers testimony against Alger Hiss, uh, who was a former assistant to the Secretary of State's assistant under FDR. The Soviet consulate closed in uh, September of 1948. And at the same time, there was a New York Times headline, Russians got data on bomb. George had to get out. By September of 1948, if there was no, uh, I have a line in the book, he could stand on the cliff expecting to be pushed and hope for a safe landing, or he could make a well-timed plan to cautiously escape. So somewhere in 1940, late 1946, 1947, definitely early 1948, when he applied in March of 1948 for a passport, he was taking the make a well-timed plan to cautiously escape. I don't think he was waiting anymore to get a message that uh, we've got everything laid out for you. So he, he escapes. He gets out sort of in the same way he got in. So like in the dark of the night on, what was the name Ocean. of the boat? It was like the USS America. What was the name of the boat that he? SS got? America. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. One thing, uh, the, I think the day before or a few days before he left, there was a one page article in Time magazine. It was the cover article, I think, with the headline, The Atomic Spy Hunt. A few days before that, there was a headline in the New York Times. This is the one in the New York Times. The committee, that's HUAC, believes that those who participated in the espionage conspiracy should be quickly placed where they can no longer jeopardize the security of the United States. He quickly placed himself on the SS America on October 8th. And out he goes. And out he goes. And I don't want to tell everything about the book. I want people to buy this book. Right. Buy the book. (laughs) Right. But he goes back to Russia and it's really hardly the ideal that his parents left to. The Jewish culture essentially is being liquidated. The the settlement in Eastern Russia that they went to live on this kibbutz-like collective is shut down. And he's just there trying very hard to now get a teaching position and return to being an ordinary Soviet Citizen and to survive. I mean, you have to realize it was anti-Semitism and anti-Americanism. When he got back, it was just at around the same time. Leaders of the Jewish intelligentsia, from Jewish writers and literary critics to actors, composers, artists, were arrested. Were getting arrested. Jews holding important posts at publishing houses, literary journals. All kinds of cultural institutions were lambasted in articles, accused of being anti-patriots, hostile to Stalin and Soviet culture. And they were called cosmopolitans, meaning they, the Jews admired Western culture. So they called them uh, cosmopolitans. And the cosmopolitans were threatening the stability of Stalin's regime. So there were no parades for George for what he did for the GRU or the Soviet Union, 
in America when he came back. He he just had to figure out how to survive, basically. So I want you to end with telling sort of a very interesting story. We have already said, and I'll repeat it because it may have been lost in the beginning of our interview. We know that in 2007, Koval finds his way back into a teaching position in the university and he lives sort of a relatively speaking normal life if there's anything as a normal life for him with the help of the GRU by the way after Stalin died in March of 1953 right. George sent a letter of a plea you know help me get a job help me look what I did for you what can you do for me basically and they did they found a good job for him and then he built on that job and became highly respected at Mendeleev yeah. Institute. Right. He was a, a teacher at Mendeleev. What I was going to say is that, so in 2007, you had mentioned earlier that Putin posthumously gives Koval the highest civilian honor, the hair of the Russian Federation gold medal. But what I wanted to have you end with, if you wouldn't mind, is to tell us something which I found just so fascinating, which was, how does Solzhenitsyn feature in this story? Oh, that's a very interesting detail, because the the only ways that, what is the hip term, he was ratted on, the only ways he was exposed, let's say, uh, were actually by himself. He exposed himself by signing some books in 2002. He being Koval. Koval, yeah. 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 Koval signed a few books at a an event, a birthday party for him, I think, but he signed some books for two of his students. He signed them with his name and in parentheses, Delmar, which was his code name. So these were, he was signing these books that were telling the saga of the GRU during uh, World War II and afterwards, I think. So it was a big, the epic saga of the GRU, he signed those. So he revealed to those two students that he was Delmar, who was mentioned in the book, but not identified. So that's when, that's one way he exposed, he was exposed. But way earlier was what you're talking about, which is 1978. And that's when the uncensored version of Solzhenitsyn's novel, The First Circle, when the uncensored version was called In the First Circle, and it was released in Russian for the first time in 1978. So I'm sure translators at the CIA realized uh, that the name George Koval who was at the very beginning in the early scenes of the novel, the part that had been censored before. They sent uh, a message to whoever was, William Webster, head of the FBI, and put the FBI on alert because George, Georgie Koval, Georgie Koval was depicted at the beginning of Solzhenitsyn's uncensored version of entitled in the first circle. And it's a scene 
where there is a, a scene of a call being made to the U.S. Embassy in Moscow and revealing that uh, by a Soviet diplomat, revealing that there is someone trying to basically send information about the atomic bomb to the Soviet Union and that this person is going to go to a meeting at a an electrical shop in Manhattan that happens to be the same as Raven Electric, which was George's cover shop. So anyhow, it's that scene. So how did Solzhenitsyn have that scene in his uncensored version? He had been had an eight-year sentence in the gulag starting in 1945, And he spent some time in a special research lab staffed by prisoners with engineering, mathematical, or scientific training ordered to help advance Soviet intelligence technology. So he was on a team assigned to work with a voice recognition device for the purpose of identifying a Soviet trader who was on a tape sent to the lab. The tape was from an intercepted call made to the U.S. Embassy in Moscow, and it revealed a Soviet diplomat anxiously trying to warn an American attaché about a Soviet spy who was giving information to Moscow about the making of America's atomic bomb, and the spy's name was Georgi Koval. And so, of course, then the FBI... uh Long story short, you have to read that part of the book, of course, but the FBI does send people, Solzhenitsyn lives in the United States by then, and the FBI sends people to interview him in 1978. So I'll leave it there, but uh, but uh, great detail. So really, the two people who outed George were first Solzhenitsyn, in 1978, and George himself at the book signing. So we're going to leave it there, but I want the listening audience to know that there is a very interesting part of this where when Koval's name seems to surface, the American consulate in Russia asks for an interview of Koval, and he still has American citizenship. They want an interview of him. And they want his extradition. And so this is the whole sort of story about that. But the, yes. the, the audience is going to have to just buy the book. That's right. <laughs> Thank you, Michael. Yeah. yeah. And what happened with this request for extradition for American citizen or dual citizen, perhaps. Right. George, George Koval. So. And then George what happened Koval, when he applied at age 85? for U.S. Social Security benefits. That's also another story interwoven. So, right. But the book is Sleeper Agent, The Atomic Spy in America Who Got Away. It's a wonderful book. It reads like a detective. You know, Dashiell Hammett couldn't have done a better job in writing a, a page turner, but it happens to be true. So let me just say, and thank you so much for oh, thank you. With us, and thanks for writing this terrific book. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Michael. That Said is produced by Compro and the Museum of Public Relations. Theme music by Sam Post. 
Please let us know your thoughts by writing to us at thatsaidzeldin at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. For That Said, I'm Michael Zeldin. That Said is produced by Compro and the Museum of Public Relations. Theme music by Sam Post. Please let us know your thoughts by writing to us at thatsaidzeldin at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. For That Said, I'm Michael Zeldin.